Last Sunday, Douglas McKinnon, who is a former White House and Pentagon official, published an article on the Fox News website. The title of the article, New York City is a warning. The blackout is coming. It was a response to the mini blackout in New York City that affected about 73,000 people. But McKinnon says this is just a foretaste and that a larger, more sustained blackout could come and, to quote him, cripple much of society as we know it. And it could and would have a devastating impact on our very lives and survival. But it was the very next sentence that gripped me the most. Such a blackout is coming. It's only a matter of time. His argument, besides the growing threats of cyber and terrorist attacks upon our power grid, is that much of our grid is antiquated and weak and vulnerable and in need of billions of dollars in repair. As an example, he points to an instance in 2003 when a tree branch fell on a power line in Ohio and over 50 million people in the United States and Canada were affected with blackouts by a tree branch. And so because these weather-related events happen virtually every day in the United States and collectively cause numerous blackouts in a given day due to our infrastructure, he says this, you have to make a plan to protect yourself and your family. It is irresponsible not to do so because when a massive blackout does hit, you will be entirely on your own. No one will be riding to your rescue when a massive blackout does hit, and it will. In literally one second, you can lose access to your money, food, gasoline, communication, medicine, medical attention, heat, air conditioning, and security. Well, I don't know about you, but articles like this from reputable sources sober and scare me. The only legitimate response when you read articles like this is to consider how you can prepare for that possibility based on the warning that you have just read and heard. Analogously, that's Jeremiah's goal. He wants Judah, he wants Jerusalem to be sobered by the warnings that he's giving. But there's a couple of things that makes Jeremiah's warnings even more horrific than the warnings that Douglas McKinnon gives in this article. First of all, these warnings are sure to come true. He's a prophet. The prophet's warnings always come true. Secondly, his warnings have to do with eternal issues. I mean, you think as bad as it would be if McKinnon's predictions come true, and it would be bad. Imagine losing the air conditioning on this kind of heat. Take my food and money. Don't take my air conditioning. <laughs> it would be eternally more devastating if Jeremiah's warnings come true. And they will, and they do. Because these warnings... Yes, directed to a particular time and place or particular people, 
are just foreshadowings of the greater judgment that will come that faces all of humanity. Now, why would texts like this on coming judgment be beneficial to us? I have a, a, a friend named Jim Hamilton who preached through Jeremiah, and he said the he said that he heard consistent complaining about so much judgment in his sermons. He said, well, the reason there's so much judgment in my sermons is there's so much judgment in Jeremiah. So why would tax like this benefit the people of God in the 21st century? First of all, we are under the authority of the same God. Now, Israel, Judah, was under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant. That has been made obsolete by the New Covenant. However, we are under the authority, we're under the covenant of creation. The covenant made with Adam. That's why all of humanity is born in sin. Adam is their covenant head. And therefore, the same God that made that covenant with Adam is our God. We are under the same covenant of creation. I call it the covenant of representation, but it's a covenant nonetheless. Second, texts like this drive home what's so amazing about grace. Without the bad news, there's no making sense of the good news. Without bad news, the gospel is like elevator music. Elevator music is just kind of background noise. It never makes you dance. Third, the reason texts like these are important is that it should burden us for the lost. If judgment like this is coming, it should burden us for the lost. And then fourth and most importantly, it reveals to us how holy and righteous the true and living God is. And so as we make our way, continue to make our way through Jeremiah, yes, there's a lot of judgment, but keep those points in mind. That brings us to verse 1. Jeremiah warns, flee for safety, O people of Benjamin. He was a Benjamite himself. Maybe that's why he's pointing out Benjamin right here up front. From the midst of Jerusalem, blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. Now, nowhere does Jeremiah describe this coming judgment from the north more vividly than Jeremiah chapter 6. It's one of the most vivid chapters on this coming judgment in all of his book. And once again, he's threatening of this enemy from the north. In a sense, the theme of Jeremiah, you could just boil it down to this, the coming of the Babylonians. That is the theme of Jeremiah. The Babylonians are coming. Remember, he's writing in a time of reform. Josiah, they have, they've found the, the, the law, which was the book of Deuteronomy, and Josiah recognizes how short they are falling with regard to comporting to the law and the covenant made with Israel. 
And so he begins these external reforms. He was a godly king. So these great reforms are taking place outwardly, but their hearts were uncircumcised. And so the more religious they were becoming outwardly, the more corrupt they were becoming on the inside. So Jeremiah is coming to a people who are very religious. And he's preaching this. And you can only envision people who are not convicted by their sin, how they would respond to a preacher like this. And although he's mentioning this kind of, uh, these people coming from the north, he mentions these other towns around Jerusalem because Jerusalem is going to be encircled. It's going to be complete devastation. You can read about that in the book of Nehemiah as well. In spite of Jerusalem's beauty, notice in verse 2, the lovely and delicately bred I will destroy, the daughter of Zion. Now this threat that I will destroy, let me get a little technical with you, but it will make sense to you. It is in what is called the prophetic perfect. Now, now what does that mean? That means it hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as done. It's going to happen. It's as if it's already happened. I will destroy. And so he is sobering them. Jerusalem or Zion here is described as this beautiful, this delicate woman, this bride, if you will, but her beauty will not save her in that day. Verse 3, shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pastor each in his place. Prepare war against her. Now, this... Verb, prepare war, literally sanctify for battle. This refers to the fact that in the ancient Near East, warfare was considered as a holy war. Okay, and so even the Babylonians would have seen this as a holy war, their gods against Judah's God. And what would happen is that priests would bless the armies before battle, sacrifices would be offered in this case, to their gods, their false gods. Astrologers would be consulted with regard to signs and times and places. And then the soldiers would be committed to, to not have relations during that time. And notice, he says here in verse 3, uh, verse 4, Arise, let us attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of evening Lengthens. In other words, it may be noon, it may be at night. Arise and let us attack by night and destroy her places. In other words, this attack cannot be prepared for because it could come at any time. It may come at noon, it may come at night. Imagine living life in that situation. You don't know when you're going to be attacked. It could occur at any moment. Jeremiah is trying to wake these people up. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is a city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. Now, this oppression here is in spite of the fact that reform is taking place. 
We have to keep that in mind. You can be very religious outwardly in not pleasing to the Lord. Oppression is the fruit of lovelessness, correct? So at the end of the day, this is misplaced love. As a well keeps its... The metaphors in Jeremiah, one of the things that you will note, he was a beautiful wordsmith. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. So she's depicted as kind of like this constant stream of water pouring from a well supplied by this stream underneath. But the stream is a stream of wickedness and evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem. Now that's a grace. When God warns, that's a grace. It's like I told you before. I think I've shared this with you. I, one time I got stopped for speeding and I asked the state trooper if I could have a warning. And he said, the warning's on the sign. <laughs> I knew at that moment I wasn't getting a warning. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. I want you to keep this in mind. God does not have a short temper. God is long-suffering. God is patient. He's not volatile and capricious like the gods of the ancient Near East, who are no gods at all. But these, these pagan neighbors of Israel worshipped false gods and they believed that these false gods had short tempers. God does not have a short temper. But His holiness and His righteousness and His justice require Him to punish sin. Now we have a problem with that, but we would also have a problem. The same people who have a problem with that have a problem that when, when a murderer gets off, the whole country was up in arms when O.J. Simpson, you know, didn't go to prison in 1994, 1995. Why? Because we have this instinct that things must be just and right to have a well-ordered world. So God has to punish sin. It's against his very nature to pass over sin. Yet with all that, we see the warning. A grace. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts. They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel like a grape gatherer. Pass your hand against over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Now that's remarkable language. Jeremiah is the speaker here. He is frustrated because he's pleading with the people and the people won't listen. He says their ears are uncircumcised. The, the word of God was an outright offense to them they found no pleasure in it. This week, I was speaking to a pastor friend. And his church just exercised discipline on a young lady who moved in with her boyfriend, unmarried. 
And then she converted to Jehovah's Witness on top of that. And he had the audacity to exercise church discipline on, on this young lady. Rightly so. And the church is having turmoil over it. Even though what he did is sanctioned and endorsed clearly by the word of God. And I was meditating on this verse this week as he was telling me that. And I read this to him. There are people, even in the people of God, whose ears are uncircumcised. How do you know if your ear is uncircumcised? Well, first of all, you may not, you may revolt against the word of God. Today I was reading about this actor named Hugh Jackman who claims to be a Christian. I didn't know he claimed to be a Christian, but I read this, I saw this headline that Hugh Jackman is a Christian. So I went and I read about Hugh Jackman. And his Christianity is meshed with a little Buddhism and other religions. He said evangelical Christianity is too restrictive. Well, to me, that's someone who has uncircumcised ears. He wants God on his terms. He doesn't want God on the terms that the Word of God sets forth. And so, someone who just despises the Word of God has uncircumcised ears. But could it be that people who are just indifferent to the Word of God, they keep their Bible in their car all week between church services because they're not going to read it during the week. Could it be some of those people have uncircumcised ears? It's a very sobering question to ask. But this is the first of more than three dozen times, more than 36 times in Jeremiah where the people do not, will not listen to God's word. But yet Jeremiah has to speak this word. As we're going to see in chapter 20, this, it's like fire in his bones. Therefore, verse 11, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Now keep in mind, Jeremiah wants their salvation. He loves these people. That's why he's the weeping prophet. So when it talks about he's full of the wrath of the Lord, Jeremiah recognizes something that we all have to understand. Until we make much of the judgment and the wrath of God there will be making no sense of the mercy and grace of God. And that's why he's full of this wrath. He knows until they hear that, they will never turn from, from their sin. They will never turn to the Lord until they hear that and they embrace that message. Verse 11, Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others. This is exile. Their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land. The irony is that Judah had sought to enrich themselves by any means. And now they're going to lose everything. And he's going to stretch out his hand and... Not a person will be unaffected. It's 
quite sobering. And as we read this, I can't help but go back to the question posed in verse 31 of chapter 5. Let's look back at that just a second for those that weren't here. It's one of the most sobering questions that could be asked at the end of chapter 5, verse 31, the last line of the chapter. What will you do when the end comes? What will you do when the end comes? It's a sobering question. It's a question that every person in the world should ask themselves. What will they do when the end comes? I'm reading a biography on Elvis Presley right now. Two volume. And man, this guy lived it up. He, I mean, he did what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it, with who he wanted to do it with. But the end came. The end came. It came swiftly when it came. Verse 13, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. He's talking about the, the spiritual leaders saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What does that mean? There's no judgment coming. There's no wrath there's peace. God is a God of love. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. They've lost the capacity for shame. They've lost the capacity to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. And so from the least to the greatest, including prophets, and we'll close here. We'll pick up here next time. All were practicing deceit. At the same time, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, were giving the people false assurance that all was well. In other words, Jeremiah, the prophet, was a lone voice. I don't know if we can say for sure he was the only true prophet at that time, but he was in the high minority. Most preachers of that day were preaching false assurance. It's like when my grandmother, seven weeks before she died of liver cancer, was told, you're not sick. By her doctor back at home. And we celebrated peace, peace. And there was no peace. And this has been a perennial lie since Genesis 3. Do you know that the first doctrine denied in Scripture is the doctrine of divine judgment? The serpent says, you will not surely die. It's the first doctrine that is denied in the Scriptures. It's what Richard Niebuhr said about the liberals of a generation ago, but it's true of the liberals today as well. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. There's no need for a cross if there's no judgment. And I want you to note again, verse 14 they have healed the wound of my people lightly. They were like 
physicians putting bandages over, over cancer and pronouncing the people healed. Their promises of peace were a delusion. Such people should have been ashamed, but their habitual wickedness had seared their consciences so that they couldn't even blush over their wickedness. I'm afraid that's where many are in America today. I mean, even Christians are entertained by things that would have led previous generations to blush. It's my deep concern, one of my concerns. And any nation is doomed to destruction when people no longer feel their shame for their sin and when even its religious leaders refuse to identify sin as sin but prefer to tickle ears. As, as I said this morning, when the gospel came to America, it became an enterprise. It became big business. And when it becomes a big business, the preacher is more concerned with filling the pews than filling the pulpit. It's a bad problem. But let me share what else is doomed. Missions. When the doctrine of judgment and divine wrath is denied or ignored, missions is doomed. Mark Knoll, who is a very distinguished church historian, notes in his book, The New Shape of World Christianity, the devastating effect that a denial of coming judgment and God's wrath has on missions. To the degree, here's what he says, any, to the degree that any denomination comes under the influence of this kind of false teaching, the number of field missionaries reduces dramatically. Why evangelize when there's no wrath? Why evangelize when there's no judgment? And no serious problem with sin. If people can merit heaven by their good works, why is the gospel needed? Conversely, the greatest missionary movement in history that began around 1795 with William Carey. Think about this. In just a hundred years, beginning in 1795, within a hundred years, Bible translations multiplied from 50 to 250 and mission organizations multiplied from 7 to 100. Missionaries were sent out to every corner of the world. Whole tribes were converted and nations discipled. By 1900, 105 years after the missionary movement began, the number of professing Christians had more than doubled from 215 million worldwide to 500 million. What inspired the great century of missionary advance? Scholars will tell you it was largely the fruit of men and women teaching, preaching the wrath of God, the reality of final judgment, and the utter sinfulness of sin. And out of that, compassion and love for the lost was spawned, compelled missionaries like John Patton in the South Pacific, Adoniram Judson in Burma, William Carey in India, and Henry Martin in India and Persia. In other words, these missionaries heard these sermons preached by these men, by these preachers, 
about the coming judgment of God, about the wrath of God. And, and these missionaries felt the gravity of these warnings from these preachers who were preaching the prophets like Jeremiah. The kind of warnings that make Douglas McKinnon's warning of a nationwide blackout pale in comparison. And it drove these men and women, these future missionaries, to embrace the Son of God where judgment had already taken place. You see, judgment came on the Son of God as well as our substitute. And they fled to this person, this Christ, this Messiah. And from that salvation, from judgment, they were propelled to tell the world. And that's why... Books like Jeremiah are so vital. We live in a time that wants to sweep the reality of God's judgment under the rug. And when we do that, we will not love the gospel. Which means we will not love Jesus, we will not love God, and we will not love the nations as a result. And that's why this word is so timely to us. Let's pray. And to